0: This is the Reading Teachers Lounge, where listeners can eavesdrop on professional conversations between elementary reading teachers. We're passionate about literacy and strive to find strategies to reach all learners. Shannon and Mary are neighbors who realized that they were literacy soul sisters at a dinner in their Atlanta neighborhood. Once they started chatting about reading, they haven't really stopped. Come join the conversation. Welcome to the Reading Teachers Lounge. We have a special guest here with us today, and today we are going to be talking about the science of reading in action. Our guest today is Malia Halliwell, and you may know her on social media as From Play-Doh to play Let me say that really clearly. Play-Doh to play <laughs> Sorry. We're so excited to have you. Um, thank you so much for sharing your new book with us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about it.
1: Malia, um, tell us how long you've been teaching, what roles, like what grade levels have you worked with, what teaching um, jobs have you had, and then tell us about what you're currently doing in the world of literacy.
2: So I started teaching back in 2003, and I was in a second grade classroom, and I was convinced that all of my second graders were going to walk through the door on the very first day of school reading. (laughs) And what I found was that just was not true. I had about half of my class that was still really struggling to put the pieces together that they needed in order to be able to read. And what was difficult for me was that I had only had one class in my teacher training program on literacy instruction. And essentially what it involved was my professor standing in front of us and saying, don't worry. If you just get good books in kids' hands, they'll be able to connect the dots and figure it out on their own. So I felt completely unable to help my struggling readers get the skills in place that they needed in order to be more successful. And it it was daunting to me. I would lay in bed at night feeling stressed. I would get to school as early as I could every morning trying to piece together lesson plans that would help them. And it felt like some things worked Sometimes, but nothing was always working, you know, day after day. I just didn't know what I was going to get. So over the years, I started researching and tweaking and um, putting together these strategies that that I could pull from um, and that would help, especially my struggling readers. And then I started having a family and (laughs) I took a break from teaching. I was on maternity leave with our second son and I started to miss being in the classroom. And I thought, you know what? I have got to do something. Education is such a big part of my identity. And um, so I started a blog back when blogging was cool. This was back in 2011. And teachers started to reach out to me and say, hey, you know, I love this alphabet activity you were doing with your son, your your four-year-old, um, could you create an activity that I could print off and use with 25 of my students? And so that little hobby became a full-time um, business. And so that's what I, I do now. But I have continued to stay committed to the research and making sure that we are constantly staying up to date on what is best teaching practice, because I truly believe in my core that we have an obligation as teachers to put our best foot forward for our kids and help them learn to read as quickly and easily as possible.
0: I couldn't agree more. And your story echoes so many people that have come on our podcast. And I think that many of us who started our teaching journey around the same time, um, really were not satisfied with the with what we were, you know, putting out because we just we knew something was not connecting and it wasn't connecting year after year after year. So um, I love this. So we all have our different stories of how we came to the science of reading. But how did you come and learn about the science of reading? How what was your journey with that?
2: it always makes me laugh thinking back to it because I'm a school board director in my hometown and I was sitting in a principal's office at one of our elementary schools and he said, oh yeah, you know, we have a couple of teachers in our building who are really diving into the science of reading. And I thought, hmm, I've never heard that term before. So I went home and I Googled science of reading. What is the science of reading book? I just wanted to get my hands on this Magical manual that was going to unlock reading for students. And of course, what I discovered is the science of reading is not a book. It's not a, another pendulum swing. It's not a political argument or debate. It really is just decades and decades of brain scans, research articles science journals. If we could take all of that information that's been collected over all of these years and put them in a giant warehouse, we would have stacks and stacks and stacks of information. And that is the science of reading. So the beauty of it is that it's kind of like the subject of chemistry or biology. You can't really argue against it. Um, You can continue to learn more and you can continue to add on to your knowledge base, but it's not up for debate about whether or not it is true or fact. And in my mind, it also means that we are at a really exciting time in the history of education because we can stop our pendulum swings once and for all and definitively say this strategy x is more effective for kids than strategy y so let's stop doing strategy y let's stop spinning our wheels and let's do the easier take the easier path
1: so is that why you wrote this book like i know you said you can't drill it down to like the science of reading you wanted to find the manual but why did you write this book you could you title it putting the science of reading into action why did you choose that title? Um, How did you decide what to include in the book? We'd love to hear some background about that.
2: Well, full circle moment, of course, I thought, you know what? I Googled science of reading book and I should probably title it science of reading something. (laughs) As I started to think about it, I thought, you know what? science of reading, the science of reading can feel very daunting and heavy because at least for me when i read a journal article that's been written by a researcher who's sitting in a brain lab somewhere you know in, in some office across the world it can feel very disconnected from what has to happen in on a day-to-day basis in a classroom filled with 5 and 6 year olds and so for me i wanted to create a bridge that would make it easy for teachers to go from this scientific jargon, complex vocabulary, and put it into easy-to-understand terms and easy to understand, even analogies, and then give them the tools that they need so they don't have to research and Google search and go down Pinterest rabbit holes that really are time consuming and frustrating and overwhelming. I want to make implementing the science of reading as easy and fast as possible for teachers. And so that word action in the title was really the most important word to me. I was not willing to move away from that because I want teachers to be able to put this in action tomorrow. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, mission accomplished. Cause you did that. Like first off, it's a quick read. I think I read it in just a few hours. Um, And maybe that's because I have some of the background knowledge from this, but you also write it in a very approachable way. And um, for those of you who have not seen the book yet, it's full of these wonderful graphics where Malia does a great job of taking the ideas that we've done episodes about, like Scarborough's reading rope and the ladder of reading and writing and simple view of reading. And she sketches them out in a way that makes them make so much sense. And you can create like a, I don't know, your own mind map and to remember exactly what this kind of complicated concept is and make it you it's you made it in a very um, easy to understand simple way to remember so good job
0: yeah agreed I was gonna say too um, as Shannon and I were even discussing after we read the book um, Shannon didn't have a copy in front of her when we were having this conversation and she said you know that one thing that we were looking for it's on a table and the table looks like this and so even like searching for something that you've previously read, I can absolutely imagine keeping this on my my teacher bookshelf, thinking, oh, I know I read that. What, what was that again? And just picking it up and knowing exactly where it was in this book. And that is such a gift. So thank you so much for the organization that you really put into this because I love it. Just love it. I'm thrilled, thrilled to hear you say that. That was my number one goal. I
2: really want this to be easy for teachers.
1: So Malia, like, um, What big idea from the science of reading do you wish you knew when you had started in that second grade classroom? And is that the idea that you started with kind of in this book?
2: The biggest takeaway that I wish I had back in 2003 was that there is a sequence that we can use to help students establish the skills they need in order to be successful readers Saying that we just need to get good books in kids' hands and they'll be able to connect the dots on their own is wildly inaccurate. And it also is disempowering to teachers. We have a wonderful, amazing, life changing opportunity to help students connect the dots and help them become successful readers quickly and easily. But of course, we need to know what that roadmap is. We as teachers need to be empowered with the knowledge. Um, to know how to teach phonological and phonemic awareness skills, how to teach um, phonics skills. You know, we need to know all of that information so that then we can help our students become successful readers.
1: So what are those, if someone stops you in an elevator and says, what is something that's been proven of science of reading? You did a good job of just sort of explaining what science of reading is just now with saying it's that big warehouse full of all the things and it's so many papers to read. And then also there's a disconnect between what's happening in the lab and at the universities with what's happening in the classrooms. And you want this to be the bridge. So what, what knowledge is on the bridge In sort of an elevator speech, like what has been shown to be true? That we can't argue with like you said we can't argue with biology we can't argue with chemistry what can't we argue with what is so true from the science of reading
2: well i um, i'm going to keep this at a very high level just to to get get us started so that we can really look at it from a thirty thousand foot view so i like to think of these skills that students have to gather as buckets so we have the bucket that's called word reading skills And we need students to be able to look at a page filled with letters and words and be able to actually figure out what those letters and words say. That's our word reading bucket. And then we have a bucket of skills called language comprehension. And so we need them to actually understand what those words mean. And when you take those two buckets and you mix them together you end up having reading comprehension which is a student is actually re- sounding out the words on a page they're following along with what the story says they're understanding what the story says and then they are they're they have reading comprehension so when i think about these two buckets what's interesting is that for so long um, there have been debates about whether it was more important to teach the word reading skills. Do we need to just be a classroom filled with phonics lessons? Do we need to be just a classroom that is diving into phonemic awareness where we're really focusing on the individual sounds and words? Or do we need to, there's another argument that says, no, we don't need to worry about any of that those ingredients that in that bucket, we actually can just focus on building students language comprehension. We can fill our classroom with read aloud stories all day long and read to students and ask great follow-up questions. And they'll be able to have um, a really solid language comprehension base that they can use to become fluent readers. And what the research shows is neither of those theories is true. We have to have We need to teach our students word reading skills and we need to teach them language comprehension. So I like to think of this like baking a cake. If you were to fill a bowl with flour and sugar and eggs and you were to mix all of that together and you put it into your baking pan and popped it in the oven, you would have just a few of the pieces of the cake that you needed. What you also need is a bowl that is filled with the baking powder and the yeast that's going to make that cake rise, right? So you can't have one bowl of ingredients without the other bowl of ingredients because it's not going to work. So we need to have word reading skills. We need to have language comprehension skills, and together we'll be able to help students become fluent, thriving readers that have rock solid comprehension.
1: I love that analogy, because every I'm a baker myself. And so every baking recipe has wet and dry ingredients, and you do need to have both. And if there's an error with the red ingredients, the dry ingredients aren't going to work as well. And the cake's not going to come out right. Or if there's an error with the dry ingredients, it's not going to come out right. And that's what you're showing in this buckets, these this bucket, um, uh, you know, um, imagery, which is based on the simple view reading, and they have that multiplier relationship where you have to have both or the value is going to be nothing. That reading comprehension is going to be nothing. Just That's like what the I'm, cake will be messed up.
2: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's one of the things that I loved. I loved most because I, when you think about it, like a math formula, mm-hmm. it clicks in a new way for your brain because you think, gosh, if I have zero word reading skills, if I have a student in my class who." has um let's say that they can the their family is filled with these solar scientists that study how solar energy is converted into power that you can use in your home and so they have these amazing dinner conversations talking about solar panels and the power of the sun and they have all of these words in their brain floating around that they can pull from well if that child walks into a classroom and is given a complicated book that's at you know a 12th grade level filled with these big words and they're not able to actually sound out the words on the page they are not going to be successful at reading that book and similarly if you have a child who can sound out all of the words in that book but has no knowledge of what these solar terms mean or you know, can't even paint a picture of what a solar panel looks like in their brain because they've just never been exposed to that. Well, that child also is not going to be successful. So if you have a zero in your word reading bucket, you even if you have this amazing base of vocabulary, you're still going to have a zero in your reading comprehension. And similarly, if you are able to sound at all the words, you have a you know big one in your word reading bucket and you have zero or sorry, if you, if I mixed that up, but anyway, <laughs> the whole point is you have to have both, right? Both pieces of the puzzle.
0: <laughs> and I think the other piece that's so great too, is that we also know that each bucket, um, while it it is really important, you have to have three solid skills. So the phonemic awareness is just as important as the phonics skills. and And those are not interchangeable skills. So if you have a child who has a weakness in that area, Building that up actually should, you know, or giving extra doses. I love that term too, extra doses of practice or giving that information. That can solidify, you know, the ingredients in that bucket. Um, and then likewise, then you build on um, on the other side. So none of them are more important than the other, but they are all key and essential. Um, and I think that that was the, another thing, you know, Shannon and I are, we've been talking about... Um, about phonological awareness actually for a good three years now. And, um, it was something that
1: it's since episode one,
0: since the first episode. No, it's true because, um, when I started my tutoring practice, I did not recognize how important and how valuable it is with students who are non-readers or struggling readers. Maybe, um, you know, I, as soon as I added that, um, that dosing, it was, amazing how readability increased. So our favorite chapter is chapter three. um, And it is um, phonological awareness isn't just for kindergartners, which is just fantastic for us.
1: That's what we talked about literally in the first three episodes of our podcast. That was my big aha moment as a reading teacher, because I was giving dibbles the phonemic segmenting fluency. Test to my kindergartners and then I went right next door to my fifth graders who could not read and I was like let me just experiment and give them this test and they bombed it and I was like wow they need the same things these kindergartners do and so thank you for titling that chapter that because I think every person needs to know that that is one of our soapboxes. boxes it's just phonological awareness isn't just for kindergartners Every teacher, grade first, second, third, and beyond, should be looking at those skills and making sure those skills are solid in their students. And so, what, sh- what do you recommend those teachers do? Like, you know, a lot of my colleagues in when I taught second grade were like, first off, I'm not going to teach phonics, and then I'm definitely not going to use picture cards and all these things that you do that look like baby activities. What should they know about phon- phonemic awareness, phonological awareness? What should they do for their students? What should they assess? What activities should they do? Get on the soapbox with us, please.
2: All the things. Let's talk about all the things because I just love this topic. I like to think about phonemic um, awareness and phonological awareness as the foundation of a house. If you, it it really is the the rock solid foundation. So if you have cracks or holes in your foundation, when you go to build up the walls and you're you're teaching kids to... Um, can see a, a letter on a page and sound out that sound. The walls aren't going to be steady and strong. When you put the roof on, it's not going to be able to hold all of the weight that um, you need it to hold simply because the foundation is cracked and unsteady. So it is imperative that we help students build a rock solid foundation of skills. And the very best way to do it is to practice these skills every single day. And the great news is it doesn't have to be complicated. We don't have to make this a really overwhelming prepping process. We can practice it through spoken language. For example, we can say, um, you know, we can give three different sounds and have kids string those sounds together k, at what's the word cat. We can have them break apart sounds. So if we said, uh, son, you know, tell me the sounds you hear in son. We can swap out sounds and have them change the first sound in uh, bat. So change the b in bat to k. what is the new word cat. So we can play around with all of these sounds just using our voice with brand new readers and help them build the neural pathways that they need in order to be able to hear each of these individual sounds. And then as soon as students have been introduced to letters, these funky little shapes on a page that make this this sound, a specific sound, it's almost like, teaching kids to become detectives so they can break the code and they can see this symbol and identify that, oh, that actually is representing a sound. As soon as that happens, now we can do those same exact activities, but connect the sounds to the letters that are used to spell them. So we can pull out alphabet magnets and have kids put the B in, you know, put the B on their on their board or on their whiteboard for the book at they can, you know, put each of those letters that they need, or they can use their whiteboard and write down the letters as they hear them and then swap out the sounds um, with us by changing out the letters on their board. So again, it's the great news is it's not a lot of prep. You do need to know what these skills are so that you're able to practice them in a really efficient and meaningful way. But you do not have to go and spend 5,000 hours cutting out lamination.
1: (laughs) I like that. You said it's like building that neural pathway for the student and building that awareness. I mean, that's in the title of the skill, which is awareness because, um, mary and i both work with like older kids that are struggling and when i tell them did you know that your ears are important in reading they argue with me they're like no they're not no they're not what and that's because they're on that misconception that like reading is memorization and so they think all they need to do is memorize the look of a word or what the order the letters are in and all of a sudden they're going to be able to read that word and as we know from the reading research as we know from your book there's a finite capacity of our brains to be able to memorize words. And we run out of that capacity very quickly before we're actually fluent readers. And so um, asking a question, like when a student says, you know, a fourth grader says, how do you spell this word when they're like writing a passage instead of just providing that word, just changing the language and saying, well, what sounds do you hear in that word? Let's take apart the sounds in that word and let's write the sounds in the order that we hear them. Even just that one statement that we changing that question, changing that prompting is going to make that student more aware of the connection between the sounds and the letters.
2: The other thing you're reminding me of is something that, that I didn't realize until just the last couple of years. We, as humans, we have this natural superpower for spoken language. Mm-hmm. And when we can take advantage of our superpower and connect it to this relatively new skill that we have in terms of human evolution which is mm-hmm. being able to look at written language that's been written down and decode it in our brain we're going to be much more successful so I love that reminder of using your ears for reading because it it's reminding me that our natural superpower for spoken language is such a huge asset and as teachers we should continue to do everything we can to be able to um, to help kids improve that, strengthen it, and then also use it for their reading.
1: When you were saying that um, phonological awareness, we make awareness was like that house and that foundation. I was remembering this fourth grade student. I've talked about him before on the podcast, but you haven't heard the story. So I'll tell you. Um, But uh, the student, Roger, he was an English language learner. He had never gone to actually kindergarten or first grade um, where he was from in his um, country of origin. And so he didn't have any Phonemic awareness skills, just not a single one. And the fourth grade teacher was starting as an intervention of working on the Dolch sight word list. And poor Roger, I mean, he went through second, third, and fourth grade with just flashcard after flashcard of just the word of and the word and and all these things. And when I met him and started doing my assessments, I held a little picture card. And I'm like, okay, I'm gonna tell you some sounds. Tell me what picture I'm holding. And I said, fish, ish And he said pencil. And I'm like, whoa. He has zero blending skills. And it took me two months to get him to be able to tell me fish, to be able to string those sounds together. But as soon as I got him to blend, then I could get him to segment. And then we started working on sound mapping the sight words and he finally learned them. But it was, it was his whole house. I was picturing his house on that sand and that roof was falling off and those walls were so shaky. He could not learn those high frequency words because he didn't have those foundational skills. And the teachers looked at me like I was insane. They thought that I was wasting so much time with him doing these silly games, but those were the barriers to his reading.
0: I I think this is such a strong reminder too, um, that, Uh, especially people who are um, of our teaching era. Um, We were just taught to teach readers to become better readers and teaching non-readers to become readers was not something that I felt confident in doing or even knowing where to start. But this is where you start. This is exactly what Shannon is talking about and creating a strong foundation. And if you are missing those essential skills, phonological awareness, phonemic awareness, and making sure that they can decode what they are looking at, that's the first piece. That's the first piece. That's where you start. Do they understand that letters can have more than one sound at times? Do they understand that each letter represents different sounds? And then when they partner together, they can make new sounds this is complicated and it requires a lot of brain power. So I love that in your book, you recommend so many of these brain friendly strategies. And um, I think it's a good segue into how um, you recommend teaching sight words. And and we often harp on the same thing. If we're going to stand on a soapbox, here it is again. Orthographically map your sight words, please. And um, yeah, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about how you explain that in your book, because I think you do a fantastic job.
2: Yes, of course. I When I think about sight words, I, I always am brought back to <laughs> when I would start every Monday morning, I would have kids... They would get two copies of their sight words, and they would cut them apart. They'd put one in a bag they would keep at school, and then they'd take another bag home, and they would practice it every single day. And on Friday, we would have our spelling test. That's the way my sight word system worked. And it really did involve, just like you were were talking about with the student just a moment ago, it really did involve drilling those sight words over and over and over again 5,000 times. Poor kids, <laughs> they um, they they did it. They stuck with me. But now I, I know better. And it's so exciting because we don't have to drill these sight words 5,000 times. So my two favorite tips for helping students learn sight words more effectively, um, well, first is sort your sight words by phonics skill. This is something that when we think about how the sight word lists were created, they were essentially created by... You know, men sitting. Dulce and Fry. Blame Dulce and Fry for the evils of the universe. (laughs) Exactly. I like to picture them sitting in a room with stacks and stacks of books and basically going page by page and tallying the number of times they found the word the, the number of times they found the word and it, and then they put all of those words in order of frequency. So if the word the was written the most, it was the first word you should learn. If the word and was the second most common, then that's the next word you should learn. And it makes sense. I mean, if you think about it just abstractly it makes sense yes you're going to need to know that word the the first because that's the word you are going to have to sound out the the um most frequently so it'll save you time but the problem is that when you are just learning those words in that order your brain is having to tackle very different phonic skills at the exact same time so for example in the word the we have two letters, T and H, making one sound. Th- and then you have the E making an, an unusual sound called a schwa. What is that if you're a brand new reader? Um, so as a teacher, the thought of even having to teach those skills to a brand new reader who is just trying to figure out that a letter makes a sound is daunting, let alone for our student who's having to master those skills that's daunting and then you're going to add on these five other words and it they all you know they all have different phonics rules that you're having to teach a short a and and the sound of an n and a d so we can do better by just simply taking our lists that we are mandated to teach that you know we recognize have value because we don't want kids to have to memorize that or have to sound them out over and over again when they're going to have to do that 5000 times so there is value in it but let's just take one additional step and let's sort them by phonics skill. Let's put all of the short A words together. Let's put all of the short I words together. And then when you're teaching them to students, they're going to be able to actually focus on just you know a very small number of phonics skills and their mind won't be quite as overwhelmed. So that's tip number one. Tip number two is exactly what you talked about, which is sound mapping. Um, and I... I'm obsessed with sound mapping if i could wave a magic wand and put a sound map in every classroom i would do it right now because i just think it's so empowering for teachers to see the difference that a simple sound map can make and you can do this by simply drawing a drawing some squares on a piece of paper so it really does not involve anything complicated or technical and it's zero cost So essentially what sound mapping is, is you are having students use their superpower for spoken language. We're going to have them turn on their reading ears, as you said, and we're going to have them listen to the sounds in a word. So let's use the word and as an example. So we want students to first just listen to the sounds and and um break apart the sounds they hear so a n d and it can be helpful to have kids actually tap those sounds on a table or tap their fingers together as they're they're listening for each of those sounds because research has shown that when we can involve our bodies um it, it just helps our brains make neural connections faster so they'll be able to break apart the sounds you
1: don't have to people. convince Mary on multisensory <laughs> that is her that is her thing <laughs> i love it i
2: love it so much so We're going to tap the sounds, as we just said. So at and then we're going to do something called mapping the sounds. So I like to use uh, mini erasers, or you can even use matchbox cars. You can go simple and just pull out some counting bears from your math corner. It, It could be anything. It could be rocks from the playground. And we want to start to help kids understand that those sounds they just broke apart are connected to something. So what we're doing is we're just having them use a little manipulative to start to make that connection and build that bridge for their brain. So they're going to place a little uh, one of these objects in um, a box for each sound they hear. So a, we'll have we'll put the rock in the first square N, we're going to put the rock in the second square. D, we're going to put the rock in the third square. Now we've mapped it. So we tapped it we mapped it. Now we're going to take another step on the bridge and we're going to have them actually connect each of those sounds to the letters that are used to spell them. So this time they're going to, again, use the same, they can use the same squares. We're going to have them um, write the letters for each of those sounds. So they're going to write the A for a, the N for n, and the D for d. So we tapped it, we mapped it, we wrote it, And now we can read it. We're going to blend those sounds together. And and the great news is that we, by following those steps, students can practice words in as little as five exposures. And they will have, they'll be able to read them fluently, which is just amazing. It's
0: like a miracle of miracles.
2: It's like becoming a fairy godmother and you are able to unlock this magical secret for kids.
0: Yep, because of orthographic mapping, which is the brain process of how letters and sounds and meaning are connected in your brain, which I just, I'm so excited about this. So I know sometimes you use um, like sound mapping as like an interchangeable term sometimes. And so, you know, just to overly clarify, like it's the, it's the brain process that's happening. Sound mapping is the um, strategy or activity, but it really breaks down each of the skills that are happening in a child's brain. And what I love is something else that we've been really um, focused on throughout the podcast in all of our five years is it first starts with sounding it out and you start with sounds first and then it translates to letters. And that part is so essential. And then not only that, then you move to actually doing the encoding piece. And if you can encode it first, then you can decode it. And that, remember if you if you are new, um, encoding is spelling it. Um, but it is the inverse of decoding as well. So I I just, I love your simple way of doing this. And I love how you have many examples that are really clear and concise in your book. And then also calls to action in your book too. So at the end of each of the chapters, um, Malia has provided a call to action with this amazing QR code. And when you click on the QR code, it links to um, a number of different things actually. Um, but I think in this circumstance, like the the videos that you have of um how you're modeling and what it looks like in real time and in real life is super valuable. So the um, the way that it is organized is just fantastic.
1: Let me add to that, Mary, like you said, you know, it breaks down the sounds and then connects them to the letters. But I really like that middle step with using the rock. Let's just call it rocks, okay? Let's just say using the rocks because for that student I had Roger who was under the misconception that he was supposed to memorize every word because that was what all the flashcard drilling was reinforcing in his mind that it was his responsibility to memorize every word that he saw and the practice of sound mapping breaks that misconception for him because now it's starting with the ears, those important ears. And we're only going to talk about the sounds. I'm not even going to let you have a pencil or a pen in your hand or a marker. We're only talking about the sounds, And then I'm still not going to give you a pencil or pen or marker. I'm going to make you tap these sounds and push these sounds with your fingers and with rocks, because I'm still reinforcing that idea for you that you need to Be aware of these separate sounds and then how those sounds connect. And then that is setting that stage and really starting to trace that orthographic mapping pathway in their brain. Now they're not looking for just a spot to memorize the words, but they're starting to look at these connections of, okay, I'm listening for the sounds. Okay, I'm tapping the sounds, I'm moving the sounds. Okay, now finally I'm given a pencil or a pen or something to write with. And now I'm gonna actually make a letter choice for how to represent this sound. So sound mapping, I agree with you that that is just the best activity that yeah. every classroom should be doing to set the stage for the right way to read.
0: There's, um, I, you know, we always talk about how much I love multi-sensory instruction. And I think that this is such a great example too, just to harp one more time, about how there may not be a magic wand for teaching children in special education. And sometimes people really hope that once their child qualifies for special education, that there is a magic wand and this special education teacher is just going to make everything so easy to happen. But the magic wand of all of it is this multi-sensory piece. It's breaking it down for another step and reinforcing again what the routine and the expectations of what your brain can do to efficiently process it. And that's that's the magic wand, people. That's the magic wand. I know you can't see me if you're
2: listening on the podcast, but I'm nodding my head (laughs) a lot, (laughs) a lot. I I agree with everything that you're saying.
1: Um, you recommend uh, breaking up the uh, sight words instead of in the Dolger Fry categories, but breaking them up by sound um, groups. And so is that the same scope and sequence you recommend? Like, where do you start with that phonics knowledge? Um, do you kind of do it simultaneously? Like if you're saying start with the short vowels, is that where you start with the short vowels? How do you teach the, the phonograms?
2: So I love, again, going going back and using our superpower for spoken language. So the most important step that I have added into my routine is actually starting by focusing on the look and feel of a sound. And this was something that um, has been game changing, at least in terms of my results with student growth, because Again, these sounds are so, it's such an abstract concept to see this odd little shape on a piece of paper. It's like a squiggle. And suddenly it has this greater meaning. That's so weird. It's just weird. So if you can start with something that kids are familiar with, which is speaking, and you can really focus in on the look and feel of a sound and have them, for example, let's let's use the short A sounds. So let's say ah. If you're talking about the ah sound, and you want kids to be able to start learning to connect that to a letter, we we would say, let's say the sound ah, that's going to be our focus for today. So we're going to say ah, ah, ah together. And it helps to have kids holding a little handheld mirror in front of their face. They can actually look at their mouth as they're making these sounds. Um, Again, just because it's, it's abstract and new to them. What you'll notice is as you ask specific questions about how that sound looks and feels, they're going to have all of these aha moments because there are things that they may not have noticed before. So when you say, ah, and you say, what is your mouth doing when you say, ah, um, it's probably tempting to pause the podcast and look in a mirror and just notice what your mouth is doing. But you can, you'll notice: is your mouth open? Is it closed? What are your teeth doing when you say ah? Are they touching? Are they open? Where is your tongue in your mouth? Is it touching at the front of your mouth? Is it in the back of your mouth? Is it high in your mouth? Is it touching the roof? Is it down low? When you say ah, what does it feel like? When you put your fingers on your um, your voice box on your throat, ah, are your fingers vibrating? Well, if they are, then it's a voiced sound. If they're not vibrating, then it's unvoiced. When you put your hand in front of your mouth, ah, do you feel air coming out of your mouth? Is that air a big puff of air? Is it a slow trickle? There are so many different variations to all of these questions. The answers to all of these questions can vary so much depending on just the single sound that you're focusing on. So having kids focus in on that single sound and and work through all of these questions and then say, okay, now let's think of some words that have this sound in it. So now again, we're creating that bridge for their brains. They can start to make, they can connect that sound to some other things that they know, which are words that they use when they're talking with their friends or their family. So you can make a giant list of words and you can write them down for them and then circle the sounds in each of those words. So maybe they said can and apple and Adam, you know, it was one of their classmates' names, Adam. And you're circling all of the A sounds in each of those words for them. And you're saying now, okay, what do you notice about all of these sounds? What do you notice when I circled all of these sounds in these words? What are you noticing? Oh, they're spelled with an A. Awesome. Okay, so now we know that A is spelled with an A. And we can use this funky little shape anytime we want to have somebody say an A sound. Well, now we've suddenly broken the code for them. We've helped them realize that this funky little shape isn't just a funky little shape. It's actually
0: communicating a lot more. That was perfect. Yeah, definitely. I... I love the detail that you give about phonics instruction in your book, even though it's so approachable. But what I also love is that you give a lot of information about comprehension instruction and vocabulary. And how does, you know, how do we make sure that the buckets that we're teaching, how do we continue to keep them um, filled? And how do we make sure that our students are not missing any of those ingredients? So
1: we're missing, we're turning the conversation from that first bucket of word recognition over to language comprehension.
0: Because I think that this is um, where we, um, I mean, even Shannon and I, we've spent a lot of time this, this season talking about phonics, and we are happy to keep chatting about it. And I think that maybe when you first come to learn about the science of reading, it's really important to really take a deep dive into the decoding aspects of what does this look like? Are my kids really able to do this work? Um, when you come into the science of reading, you can't neglect the other pieces too, because it's not an all or nothing. It's, you know, we, we really have to do that. So I love so much um, all of your calls to action. I love how you have discussions and and graphs that kind of detail conversations about what this looks like. But could you tell us a little bit about how teachers can approach vocabulary and comprehension instruction?
2: Absolutely. I I think that's um, I'm so glad that you brought this up and about the importance of continuing to teach both skills, because I think especially for primary grade teachers, it can feel very much like you have to be 100 percent focused on teaching students how to read. I've heard that phrase a lot. You know, we're focused on teaching how to read, and then later we'll focus on what to read. That's when we can really expose them to nonfiction and, you know, different genres and and stretch their vocabulary. But the reality is, the truth is, if you ignore this language comprehension component when students are in fourth and fifth grade and they're being asked to read more complicated nonfiction texts. They won't have the vocabulary they need to be able to do that successfully. So we absolutely cannot ignore continuing to build students' language comprehension. The good news is that if you are a primary grade teacher, again, it doesn't have to be complicated. We can build students' language comprehension through conversations. So even just asking students to share weekend news and giving children the opportunity to build their vocabulary and um, stretch their ability to communicate by turning to their partner, sharing what happened during the weekend is a simple way that we could help them build their language comprehension because they're having to hear another human speak and use words that they may not be familiar with from their home. Um, and so that's, you know, one simple example. Read-alouds are fantastic for building students' language comprehension because, again, authors are going to use a variety. Ooh, sorry, hang on just one second. Mike, printer just turned on. <laughs> Hold on. Sorry, apparently... <laughs> So read aloud books are an amazing way to build students language comprehension because authors are using are using words, terminology, explanations that you wouldn't normally use in your day-to-day communication with kids. So you can bring out new vocabulary words that you may not even think of introducing without that read aloud book in your hands. But now, because you know it's important to build students' language comprehension, you're gonna look through that read aloud book ahead of time and you can pull out just a couple of words that you know will be new for your students. You can pre-teach those words. And then when you're reading the read aloud book, you can stop when you get to those words, talk about them again to reinforce it for kids. And then at the end of the book, You know, you can circle back again and say, oh, remember, we learned these three new words. Turn to your neighbor and let's talk about what each of them mean. So we can just by being a little bit more intentional and really looking at a read aloud book as a tool for building language comprehension, that simple little mindset shift will have powerful impact on students learning.
1: And then even further, like if you had a writing response to reading task after and you made a word bank of just a few of those words and encouraged them to use those words in their writing Mm -hmm. would take it even further.
2: Yes, I love that.
1: And Mary and I just um, had an episode about the speaking and listening standards where we dug deep into those. And we really saw looking at the language of those standards, how much it sets the stage for building those language comprehension skills. So I totally agree with your first answer. Um, I think I know the answers to these, but I'm going to ask you anyway about your preference, this or that. ward walls or sound walls?
2: Sound walls, 100%. Am I allowed? Is this a, is this a go as fast as you can? No, to- no, no.
1: You can give us right. details. Okay. Yeah.
2: Sound walls, because... I had a word wall. I was definitely a super fan of word walls, but now we know that word walls are just really an ineffective use of classroom space. They take up so much room. And so you want to make sure you're actually getting bang for your buck if you're going to hang them up. And word walls do not help students learn to read. What we need to do instead is um, use that space to take advantage of our superpower for spoken language and have kids see if you can use sound walls to have kids see a visual picture of what each sound looks like and then connect each of those sounds to the letters that are used to spell them.
1: In your book, another sketch I really like is how you sketched the battle valley and explained um, why you put those in a certain order and things like that, like how you were just explaining with the short A and like really thinking about every little space of where your mouth is moving and where the sound is being produced, that that's the reasoning of going having the vowel value. And I didn't understand that before. So I appreciate that about your book. Okay. Decodables are level text. Is it an either or or an and? No, (laughs)
2: it is 100% decodable. And the reason is because when you look at level texts, you are looking, every page is filled with a huge range of different phonics skills. We were talking a little bit ago about how the words the and it are really focused on very different phonics skills. And so when you have a leveled text, those books were written without considering all of the different phonics skills that were, were coming into play with those words. And so as a result, a level one book might be, each page might be filled with 10, 20 different phonics skills. And instead, if we can put books in kids' hands that are are very tightly connected to a specific phonic skill. Let's say that we're teaching the short a sound um, and having kids connect that short a to the you know letter a, if we can have them read a book that is um, filled with am words, ham. Uh, I probably should have thought of a different word. <laughs> well, there's <laughs> jam and Pam and Sam, jam
0: jam. Sometimes when you get put on the spot, it's really weird and hard. I totally get that way. But <laughs> yeah, you're right. No, am, jam, sam, There we ma'am. go. So we,
2: can make a sto- we can make a story with all of those words.
0: All about yams, yeah. jam. Yeah. <laughs> so that's going to be so much more
2: powerful for kids because they are practicing the skills that they have already learned and they're able to actually decode them. That's why they're called decodable is because students are in a power position to be successful
1: so they're applying that orthographic mapping um they're they're reinforcing that practice of mapping out the sounds segmenting the sounds then blending them together as they're reading and so you're encouraging that orthographic mapping path to learn to read instead of just memorization um can they read level text at least when they're fluent with like if you've gone through all of your phonics scope and sequence that they've mastered
2: I am so glad you asked that because I actually have a lot of kindergarten and first grade teachers who say,
1: oh my gosh, alert SOS, my
2: classroom library is filled with tons and tons, dozens of these level texts. Do I just have to walk out to our schools? We don't ever want to throw away books. No, we're not, <laughs> no. we do not no. want to throw away books. Pass them on to teachers who are in the upper grades. They absolutely can read them. The whole point of making this shift to decodable is that you want to make sure that your students, whoever is reading that book, is able to decode the words on that page. That's why it's called decodable. So if you have a student in fourth and fifth grade who's able to decode and read all of those words, that's It is a
1: decodable text to them.
2: Exactly. Exactly.
1: Nice. Okay. So the leveled text becomes a decodable text. That is, I'd not thought about that before. Okay, I know the answer to this one: sound mapping or flashcards. Would you ever do flashcards? Uh,
2: okay. hmm, that's a good question. I I'm gonna say no because this is a this or that, and I want to win the game. Okay, so okay. I'm just gonna stick with sound mapping. Okay,
1: but maybe like I've seen like those hard word flashcards, where at least like maybe. They could look at have and see, you know, the magic doesn't um, quite make
0: sense. I use the same um, thing to teach my students. And actually it's, um, uh, uh, it's a resource that we've recommended before about orthographic mapping. And so it's, it's a flashcard that actually the students first do their mapping on. And it has Mm. like where they create their heart word and, Then we put them into a deck and I have a new fun game that we play with them now. So since they're reviewing and we want extra practice turns, I have this really fun game called Jumping Jack. And it's like a little rabbit that sticks in and there's carrots all around. And when you pull the carrot out, it may surprise and pop the, the character, the rabbit out. And so it's like a surprise. So we play games where I use flashcards of the current phonics. Thing that we're working on. So, like for example, we we're doing um multisyllable words. Um, and the pattern was our control um, with syllable division. So they're reading that to me and I'm spelling it. And once I spell it, then they then I pull a carrot, then I give them one of their trick words or one of the um words that we've been practicing orthographic mapping for sight words, and they spell it as a review, and then they pull it and if if the person can catch the rabbit, I'm, I'm telling you, it has been like a game changer in my instruction. Well, you're, so you're not just having them
1: read it. You're having them spell it.
0: I'm having them spell With it. With the flashcard. Right.
1: That's because different. Because
0: it's mm-hmm. a review and we have already learned to read, decode, or read, encode, and then decode. So they do have the ability to do both. Because um, so, there
1: is some power in like of... both of those sounds are hard sounds Yes, sounds like of but is spelled o f
0: but they have like i have to really like reiterate though this is after i have specifically taught and explicitly Mm -hmm. taught these skills so then this is just a really fun review way of getting in as many practice turns as possible so um, maybe i'll do a video um and yes. and share it on social media so you all can see what this little game is and I you can do it. It anything super and cute. then
1: also we like um sight word phrases so why don't we amend that and say sound mapping and then sight word phrases instead of sight word I, flashcards I,
0: I do love that because um when we're using the the sight word phrases that's more of like a fluency skill that we're building in but i think I think what we're kind of talking about are two different things. So, like the strategy of sound mapping is an explicit one. Um, using the um, like sight word phrases would be a, a really important review to build up fluency. So, um, both of these strategies are good. You just have to know exactly why and when you're using them.
1: Dolch or Fry list, and you're going to say neither, aren't you? <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs>
2: You didn't even mean, mean me to answer. <laughs> yes, I would just say, I would actually say it doesn't matter which list as long as you sort them by phonic skill.
1: Yeah, I, I did that this summer. This past summer, I actually organized the Dolch list Bank because I used to come from a Dolch district and that you weren't able to tell the principal, no, I'm not working on the Dolch words. Like we didn't really have that autonomy to just create our own high frequency word scope and sequence. And so you could at least group the words the way you teach them and then again teach that heart word strategy really quickly for some of the words like who knows why yellow is in the pre that's yeah that's one of my that. that's going to be one of the
2: world's great mysteries
0: exactly. it, like, it really is i, know. I don't and, get it <laughs> like, it's, it's a memorized but never spelled correctly word it's it's I amazing
1: mean, <laughs> do that many preschoolers <laughs> need that word i don't understand
0: um, that was Anyway, well, here's here's what I really want to talk about because as um as we have learned so much valuable information and we've reflected on a lot of um the information that we've learned even over this season, um I am wondering, Lilia, what do you think is the next right thing for teachers to do in terms of putting all of the science of reading into action? Like, if you're getting this, you've listened to the season, you're you're like, yes, I buy into it. What where's the first place to start? And if they have already sort of started, like, what's the next step after that? Because I think that's what you are so brave and wonderful and um, useful and helpful at explaining in your book.
1: Yeah, like a self-check. Like, okay, I'm doing the science of reading. Well, do I just feel like I am, or can I like can I know that I really am?
0: Yeah.
2: Well, first, I hope everybody walks away feeling like you know what I recognize a couple things in this conversation that I'm already doing and. So I'm already on the path to using brain friendly strategies in my classroom. There may be some things I need to tweak, but we're always learning. So I hope that a big takeaway is that we just, as teachers need to be lifelong learners um, and continue to become empowered to help our students. This is really exciting. This is such an exciting opportunity. So we don't need to feel daunted or um, shameful that we may have made mistakes in the past. Let's just dive right in and start making the tweaks we need to make because our kids are counting on us. So I hope that there is excitement. <laughs> That's step number one is getting excited. And then I would say, you know, the, the first tweak I would make if you're not already doing it is start practicing Um, phonological awareness. Now, phonological awareness has different parts to it. And I'm sure that you all may be familiar with what those parts are. There's research that's come out that says you can actually jump right into the skill in the phonological awareness is kind of an umbrella skill. So you can um, jump right into the skill that is focused on individual sounds and words. So we can jump over syllable segmenting. You know, yes, it's it's important, it's valuable, it's helpful, but it's not really going to help students as much as we used to think it was. We can jump over counting the number of words in a sentence. Yes, that kind of helps a little bit, but we don't have to spend a ton of time on it. Instead, what the research is showing us is the most important phonological awareness skill that we can work on is phonemic awareness, phoneme awareness, where students are really focusing in on the individual sounds and in words, so k, at, and so if you can practice those skills every single day, and you can have students playing with the sounds every single day, you will start to see significant progress in their reading, because Again, you're helping build that really rock-solid foundation that they need in order to be steady and strong so they can build up the walls and the roof of the their reading house. So that would be number one. And then number two, sorting your words by phonic skill. I know I've mentioned it several times, but it really does make a difference. I think for watching students in my classroom struggle and spend hours and hours torturing themselves trying to drill those sight word flashcards now that you know that there's an easier, faster way for them to learn it by simply you know, printing off a sound map or having kids sound map on a whiteboard, that one little tweak is going to help them not only be more successful, but also feel more confident as a reader because they're going to realize, oh, wait a second, I can do this thing. And that is going to naturally help them become even more motivated to practice. So if you can start with those two things, um, you're going to be on a big swing to success. And then the third thing I would add is just continuing to build vocabulary and comprehension skills. Again, read-alouds are a great way to do it. So just make sure that you're taking advantage of your read-aloud time. You're encouraging kids to have conversations in class. You're not shying away from big vocabulary words. As a teacher, I know sometimes we think, oh gosh, I'm talking to five-year-olds. I shouldn't use that big word, but use it. Just make sure
0: you explain it too. Uh, I I have so enjoyed our conversation, chatting with you, especially about the book. But just in general, I feel like um, the the way that you uh, how do I say this the way that you approach the science of reading is just inspiring. It's um it it feels like it's something that we should get excited about and it is something that we can do and we can accomplish together. And um, I just really, uh, really appreciate this conversation. Thank yeah. you so much for joining us today. You make
1: it fun and approachable.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yay. Good. It is fun and approachable.
0: It is. You're <laughs> yes. right. It is. And yeah, and everybody really can make some small changes and it is absolutely feasible and the results are amazing. So great. Um, So tell us a little bit, Malia, where can we find you um, online?
2: You can find me at Play-Doh to Plato, like Socrates, the philosopher. So Plato to Plato. dot um, I have a ton of free resources that you can grab there. You can also find me on Instagram. That's my favorite mm-hmm. social media platform. I'm at Plato, and that one is two, the number two Plato. Um, and then yeah, every everywhere else that your heart might take you. So we're on TikTok and Facebook um, as well.
1: And we met you on Instagram, so we are so glad to have connected with you. And thank you so much for joining us here in the Reading Teachers Lounge.
2: Thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast.